Hello, friends. Welcome to the Coffee and Deer podcast. I'm your host, Nick Pinizzato, here as always with the co-host, the doctor, Mr. Mike Broman. Coffee and Deer podcast is sponsored by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Black Rifle Coffee Company was built on the mission to serve coffee and culture to people who love America. Today is also NDA Giving Day. So gifts made today to the National Deer Association are matched up to $50,000 thanks to the support of some generous donors. So this is your opportunity if you are inclined to support the National Deer Association financially, you can double your gift. So your 100, 100 bucks becomes 200 bucks and so on. So please consider uh, helping us out today. We would appreciate it. The deer will appreciate it and the habitat will certainly appreciate it. All you got to do is go to deerassociation.com and click on the donate button at the top of the page. Our guest on this episode is Brenna Bobby from the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine, affectionately known as PennVet. I know chronic wasting disease is never a fun topic, but this one's a little bit different because we're going to be talking about dogs. And uh, Brenna is part of the Pennsylvania Wildlife Futures Program, which we're going to learn more about in the interview. And she's going to talk about how dogs are being trained to help find chronic wasting disease. So some really cool things happening there in the CWD research and detection world. This is not an Ask NDA Anything episode, but this is your reminder to please get your questions in. Typically, we have a few questions by this point, but we don't yet. So please get them in for the next episode. We always enjoy giving you our answers. And of course, we'll have the B-team report. And once again, we did not disappoint. So the, the doctor and I will be coming at you with something, uh, something good or something horrific, depending on uh, your point of view on that. Speaking of the doctor, let's say hello to a man that is currently inflicted with Jake fever, the doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. How's it going? Happy Giving Day, Mike. And, yes, uh, happy Giving Day to you. So I, I got to let you, whenever I give you your intros, I feel like I have to give you an opportunity to, to justify where my interest is coming from. And so tell us about Jake fever. Well, Jake fever is what happens when you scout all spring long on a piece of ground and all you're seeing is Jake's and you still stubbornly go out, get yourself set up, perfect situation in between two birds that are gobbling and they're both Jake's and they come in and they literally do everything but sit on your lap and tell you what they want for Christmas. Well, you shared some pretty funny video footage with me. Uh, <laughs> that uh, was sort of typical of the morning that day. But um, yeah, I mean, we're obviously a deer organization and we're talking deer 90% of the time, but we're not going to pretend that turkey season's not happening. And we know a lot of deer hunters do hunt turkeys. So uh, after the interview, we'll go ahead and talk a little turkey and update people on our seasons here now that we're finally able to hunt up here in the cold, wet north. So uh, that'll be coming to you after the interview. So with that, Let's just go ahead and jump into it. This is a really interesting discussion with Brenna. Some cool things happening in the CWD world. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get to the interview. It's my pleasure to welcome Brenna Bobby to the Coffee and Deer Show. Brenna is a conservation canine supervisor and handler at the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine, affectionately known as PennVet. 
And Brenna, we are excited to have you on to discuss this very interesting topic. And I personally have had a chance to spend some time with you and the handlers and the dogs, which has been one of the more fun and interesting things I've done uh, recently. So uh, really happy to have you on. And so why don't you tell us a little bit more about you? Yeah, thanks. No, I'm happy to be here. Um, so I'm Brennan, like you said, I'm the uh, conservation canine supervisor for the Wildlife Futures program. Um, and then I also handled actually two dogs for the program as well. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where, where did you grow up? Are you, are you living where you grew up? So working in your in your own backyard? Close. Yeah, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Philly. Um, I'm a little further out now in Mechanicsburg, um, which is nice. But yeah, pretty, pretty close to home still. So it's likely that somebody's sitting there wondering, man, I like dogs. I'd love to be a dog <laughs> handler. Uh, so tell us, tell us about your career path. What led you to doing what it is you do now? Yeah. So when, you know, I was that little girl who like always loved animals. And I think when that's the case, um, you kind of got told or, or just think you're going to be a veterinarian, right? Like you, you like animals, you'll be a vet. So I think most of my life growing up, that was, that would have been my answer. Um, and even going into college, like I went in for, um, animal science, which is kind of a pre-vet path. Um, and I sort of found myself just falling into dog training and then more specifically working dog training. So um, I think it was after my senior year of high school, I had the opportunity to train service dogs abroad. Um, and I came home, I loved it. I came home and just kind of, you know, looked for more volunteer opportunities to do that. Spent a lot of my summers off in college doing uh, service dog training until eventually I landed an internship at the working dog center doing working dog training. Um, and once, once I got into that, it was like game over. Um, I, I knew that that was where I was meant to be. And it was like, yeah, my junior year of college, I was like, nope, this is it. Um, and totally kind of shifted. I, I had just found myself falling back into kind of this dog training path over and over again until eventually I realized I, I might be able to make a career out of it. Very cool. So I, I got to warn you in advance, uh, uh, Mike there, the doctor, he's uh, also got quite a bit of dog training experience and dog oh, yeah. handling experience. So if this goes off the rails, I'm, I just may be completely elbowed out of the podcast <laughs> no, <that's> here. <laughs> and he also has plenty of experience with uh, German short-haired pointers, which you have. And we'll talk about your handsome young fellow there who I've had a chance to hang out with a couple of times here in a little bit. So uh, Mike, thinking of your dog handling and training time, mostly hunting dogs, of course, but not all, not always, I guess you've done some other stuff too. Is this something that if you knew was a career at the time, like something you think you'd be interested in? It seems pretty cool to me. All right. I think as a career, it's, it's a very interesting career, but it's not something that I wanted to do as a job because what I am as a person, I have a, a very high sense of responsibility. And when I was training my own dogs and was having a lot of success with it, other people would ask me to take their dogs on and, and train them. And I just thought for me, it was like a huge responsibility. Um, and as I'm sure you well know, 
when you do train a dog, you put so much of yourself into that. Yeah. It's almost hard to give that dog over to somebody because you know, well, they're never going to do it this, as well as I did, or they're never going to do it as right as I did uh, with that dog, like that, that bond or that connection and that working relationship. It, it for me just never, never seemed to click once I'd see somebody turn it over just because of the, the focus that I had and the way that I actually saw problems and work through them with the dog. And um, so I was just glad to deal with my own dogs at a certain point. I told everyone I'm not going to, I'll, I'll work with you and the dog, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take on a dog and train it and then turn it over to you. That's hard. Yeah. I think it gets easier. You know, I, I remember like the first few dogs that I turned out, it was, yeah, it was very emotional, very difficult. Um, but I found that, you know, as, as you just kind of keep going through it, it gets easier when they live with you. It's totally different. I mean, when I first started working at, uh, the working dog center, I, I had a foster dog and yeah, like (laughs) eventually letting him go was brutal. It was like tearing your heart out. It was awful. Um, but I found just like, yeah, the, the kind of day-to-day training over time, it does get easier and you kind of are like, you know, you, you get into this mindset of. It's like your kids growing up, like you want them to go off and have a career and do the job that they're meant to do. And it's kind of like fun and exciting to go see them do that. Um, I actually found it so much harder because I kind of started in the opposite direction you did where I was training, you know, dogs for other people for a long time before I started working with my own dog. And I found that to be so much more difficult because you have so much more emotional investment in it. And it's just like, yeah, it was like, you took every little thing so much more personally, if it went wrong, you know, you're so much more emotionally invested. I found it to be such a challenge. It is. It is. When you make that, that bond with your dog and that working relationship, as I call it, it's because when my dogs had to do something, that's what I called it. We're going to work now. It was both of us going to work. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, it's different. Like everyone says, well, you know, doesn't that get boring? Because, well, it's, it's a different job. I mean, each of my dogs, when, when I'd ask them to do a different task, whether it be tracking or field work or uh, water work, they had a different collar. And I would, you know, when they would put that collar on or that specific harness, they knew because it was so consistent what their job was at that moment in time. And it made it easier to train, but then blending all of those together where they could do anything and everything. And they had to decide on their own. And I had to give up a little bit of that control. um, That's when you'd see the proudness really just beaming from me because the fact that they got it, like I, I laid down the foundation, the groundwork, but yet they are their own autonomous being making decisions in real time. And because we can't smell what they can smell, hear what they can hear, see what they can see. And to allow them to do that was always, and just see them do it well, was always such a proud moment. That was the biggest, I think the thing that I liked the most about when I went from service dog to working dog was that independence, right? Like with service dog, you're really training dependence. You want them to always be tuned into that handler and responding to that handler and and reacting to them. And with the working dogs, it's, you are training independence. You want to be able to tell them one thing and they go out and, you know, complete this whole series of really impressive tasks and yeah, kind of just go out and figure it out on, on their own. And it's just, it is so cool seeing them be so independent and, and so functional outside of anything you're asking them to do. So 
Brenna, tell us about the Pennsylvania Wildlife Futures Program, uh, because that really is the host for this important work in detecting chronic wasting diseases we're going to get into here in a little bit, but just about the Futures Program in general. Yeah, so the Futures Program is is a program within PennVet. Um, so they their kind of goal is to increase disease surveillance, management, research, um, kind of generally protect wildlife across Pennsylvania and, and now beyond, too, with the research aspect as well. Yeah, and it's actually a, a partnership that we're part of through the National Deer Association helping with uh, CWD primarily is our is our primary work there but how I got a chance to meet the dogs is we're shooting a couple videos one of the dogs in your work which was an awful lot of fun <laughs> ironically the temperature is not any warmer now months later than it was then I know. <laughs> it was a chilly day yeah <laughs> uh, and then also in the laboratory at the new Bolton Center where we uh, where, where the uh, uh, where the futures program test uh, does the CWD testing so uh, look for those to be coming out soon but then now tell us more specifically about the PenVet Working Dog Center, because it's not just CWD, is it? No, the Working Dog Center actually is, it, their whole thing is just kind of like creating. So again, like Wildlife Futures, they're a subset of PenVet. So they're kind of like their own program within um, PenVet. And they basically just develop working dogs for a multitude of careers. And they're trying to look at, you know, what goes into developing between genetics, training, you know, they're doing a ton of research, what what can go into developing like the best working dog. Um, so that's, that's kind of their, their whole thing. And so what are some of the other things the working dogs do there? So they have a big branch that does search and rescue. They have a big branch that does law enforcement, both single and dual purpose. Um, and then they have a huge research branch as well. So um, they, they take on a lot of, you know, research projects throughout the year, looking at lots of different things. And that's kind of where the uh, CWD project originally came in was, was with a proof of concept to see um, whether or not dogs could even do this with the Working Dog Center research team. Yep. So a lot of great research going on there. Yeah. Um, back There was a time earlier in my career where I got to go on a search and rescue with dogs that were trained to do this. And that was fascinating to me. Unfortunately, it was a situation where a woman had taken her own life and um, they had used the dogs to try to find her, which yeah. we did eventually. And so that's very important work, obviously. But then on a conservation side, I would encourage people to actually look up the PenVet Working Dog Center. They have their own little Facebook page. Uh, it's one of my favorite follows to see what's going on there because it's just fascinating, all the amazing things that dogs can do. I think people sometimes encounter dogs in airports, for example, looking mm -hmm. for drugs or explosives and CWD, which we're going to talk about here in a second. So speaking of CWD, tell us about your CWD detection team. So tell us about your handlers, the areas yeah. they cover, and then the dogs. Sure. So we have three. So we have um, Ellie Batista. She covers the Northeast and South re East regions with um, Vega. And so three of our dogs are actually sisters. So if the names sound kind of similar, it's because they, they're all from the same litter from the Working Dog Center. Um, I cover the North Central and South Central regions with my two dogs, Vera and Yuki. And then uh, Robin Strong covers the 
uh, Northwest and Southwest regions with their dog, Victoria. So the breeds. Yeah. I know the answer to this, but I think people yeah. will be interested to know what breeds you're using. <laughs> yeah. So the sisters are labs. They're all black labs. Um, and they are about two and a half now. I guess they turned two in January. Um, and then I also have a GSP who we brought on um, that I had raised him since he was a, just a little baby. Um, and we entered a co-own agreement between myself and the university to bring him on, um, to kind of backfill just in case, um, you know, anything happened with working dogs are, are higher risk than, than pet dogs. So unfortunately it's not like incredibly uncommon to have an injury or something like that. So we kind of wanted to have a, have a backup guy just in case. Yep. And for those who don't know, GSP stands for yeah. German Shorthair Pointer. Uh, most of this audience probably knows that, but you never know. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And he is certainly <laughs> a handsome devil. And Mike had a, a prize po a pointer not all that long ago. Um, and so uh, we've talked about uh, we've talked about him on the show as well. And so let me I want to bring this up and, and Mike can answer this, too, because he's got experience with it. Um, so, you know, Mike Mojo was pretty high energy, but actually pretty, a pretty good boy as a pet, he seemed like too. That's not always the case, but so Mike, you answer this, but I want to bring this up to, to Brenna. The question is, do, do working dogs make good pets for the average person? And then I'll give a personal experience from my time with the dogs, but Mike in general, you've been around a lot of sporting dogs, you know, working dogs, your thoughts on that. Well, I'll go first. Um, I will have to say that, um, first of all, Mojo wasn't ridiculously high energy. He was a great in-the-house dog. He was kind of an old soul in a young dog's body from the time I got him, which was great. But, um, but when you'd cut him loose in the field, in the bird field, he would actually, he was a big runner. I mean, mm -hmm. came out of field trial stock. I mean, he would, he would break wide at a mile and a half and, and be comfortable out there and controllable out there. But as soon as you'd bring him in for tracking or water work, very, very different demeanor. So I, I really, that's why I think he was be, you know, able to become a versatile champion because he, he could control his urges, which was great. So to get back to the question, um, I'll tell you that working dogs, I think are potentially a good pet, you know, a good household pet. I mean, I know a lot of them, especially, uh, the good thing is, is with law enforcement, things like that, when they retire, they usually stay with their handler, but um, with bird dogs, uh, especially there are some breeds that are a little bit more innate, higher energy than others. I, I like, um, I think you see so many Labrador retrievers is because at least um, the, the genetic strains that they're using, they are a little bit more like person centric and a little bit more able to focus on one person and focus on their task. Whereas um, Remy, my English pointer now, uh, the most lovable dog I've ever had. She's a, she's a 30 pound lap dog, literally, but she is just so wound all the time. I mean, different sound, different noise, different smell. She's got to go and figure out what it is. And that can be a little bit uh, daunting to people that aren't, you know, usually they want a dog that's going to like lay at their feet all the time. And that's really not how some of these bird dogs that are high energy really are. So you have to look at the breed, the, the parents, um, talk to people. Uh, the one thing I always say is before you get a dog, you should always, you know, vet them just like you would uh, any other major purchase, because these, 
and these little, you know, I, I call them like little symbiotes. I mean, like they, you know, like they, like they, they are part of your family. I mean, they're not a person and I don't treat my dogs like people, but you know, we all become like, we become more like dogs and I think they become a little bit more like us and we become this weird little pack. And when you have that relationship, I think it works the best for everybody because everyone's on the same page and everyone communicates the same language. But um, yeah, certain breeds are higher energy. And if that's not something you're into, you know, or you don't have the space to let them burn off that energy, usually problems arise and then, they, then it's all, it never works out good for anybody in my opinion. So, Brenna, tell us about the little black rockets that if you're not paying attention, they will take your knees out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know if I if I completely agree with them making the best pet. I think it depends. Like, within a within even a litter, you know, it, it can vary. Like, when we, we spent time, and like you said, like, doing your research, doing your homework, spending, you know, making sure you're getting uh, a really decent breeder. Um who's willing to kind of make the right selection with you, I think is so important because even within a litter, there's so much range. Like Yuki's litter, my, the pointer, um, we spent time with every week from the time they were four weeks old. Um, and I selected a really intense, drivey, confident dog. And that is what I got. Um, but there were other puppies within that litter that I think are in more... Um, pet type homes that are doing really well with that. And from the beginning, you could tell that they were a little more like relaxed, a little more willing to just kind of like hang out. Um, but yeah, that <laughs> knowing which, which puppy you're getting is super important, I think, cause it can totally change. And yeah, man, those labs are like insane. They're, <laughs> I kind of say though, they're like my extroverts and, and Yuki, the GSP is like my introvert, right? So like the labs, when they're around people, holy cow, they are so, especially my girl Vera, she is like crazy about meeting new people. So intense, so excited. Um, and it's kind of like a little bit of a farce because at home, she's actually not too bad. She's, she's relatively manageable at home. As long as you spend the time to direct her drive and get her energy out, you know, with working in the field, then she's able to kind of turn it off a little bit. Yuke seems a little more, you know, when you meet him, he doesn't seem so completely overwhelming because he's kind of my introvert. He's sort of like, ah, and those pointers are much more independent, much less person centric. He kind of goes off and is more than happy to go out and work and do his own thing. So when you meet him, you might not be so overwhelmed, but at home, he is a menace. He is like... <laughs> He is a handful and a half. I mean, I would say he is specifically would not be a good pet. Even as a working dog, he can be really overwhelming. Um, and I, I really have to dedicate a lot of time and energy to directing his drive. Um, the biggest challenge with him is that he just does not settle outside of his crate. So um, he, he still goes, he's three and a half and still goes down for um, crate naps. Like, several times a day because he will not settle himself and he'll just start getting a little bit naughty. And, and it's like that overtired toddler. He's asking to, to go put, get put down in the crib because he cannot bring himself down. But it's like, if you don't know what to do with that, it could totally be overwhelming. All right. Well, speaking of the work, because it's not all play, yeah. <laughs> some play, but there's work. So I think people were really curious now the word's out about the research and the work that's going on. So generally speaking, how do the dogs detect chronic wasting disease in the field? Yeah. So it, 
you know, we're teaching them the difference between it's not just like it, it's very different than um, you know traditional detection training, which I view as more like memorization of an odor, and then they go and find that odor that you've asked them to memorize. Um, with this, it's differentiation between two really really similar things. Um, it's not just memorizing, you know, deer poop. It's looking at um, you know constantly kind of like surveying and and looking at the difference between uh, a pile of deer poop that came from a deer that was infected with CWD versus one that was not. So um, when we train the dogs, we have, you know, and we're still working on it. Um, we have fecal samples from known CWD status deer. So we know that, you know, this sample came from a deer with CWD, this sample came from a deer that did not have CWD. Um, and we basically just asked them to figure out the difference, which is a really, really hard thing to do um, because the only difference is not just the presence or absence of those VOC, the volatile organic compounds from, CWD, there's lots of differences um, from one fecal pile to the next. So it, it does take a ton of time um, and they do have to see like a really large sample set, much larger than with, um, you know, like a more traditional like memorization type. Like if you're teaching a dog on a drug odor and explosives odor or anything like that, it would take a much smaller sample set for them to kind of understand what they're looking for. Um, our dogs have to see a really large sample set before they kind of get to that that point of really understanding um, what we need to, what they need to be differentiating between. And I had a chance to watch the dogs work and find, yeah. uh, you know, CWD in the field. And it's, it's pretty impressive once they find it, then they, they, you know, lock on and sit there and they wait and then they get big rewards, right? Cause you guys are oh, throwing yeah. toys to them and everything else. So, um, so let's talk about that. We mentioned research earlier. And this is kind of a two-part question. So what is the current state of the research? Where are we at with the program? And also, as this gets rolling, what could it mean for state wildlife agencies in terms of tracking the disease in the field? Yeah, so the Working Dog Center had, you know, they kind of did that initial couple of stages of research. So they did the proof of concept to figure out, you know, before I was even around, um, before my position was created, they ran a proof of concept with a team of research dogs to determine whether or not dogs could even differentiate between, um, you know, these fecal files from CWD infected deer and not CWD infected deer. Um, so they ran that study and published it, I believe this past February, it came out, um, you know, showing that they could in both laboratory and field settings. Um, and then they, are currently working on, I think they're kind of in the, the end stages of um, writing research on uh, alternate training aids. So um, when we got in the field with the dogs, we kind of need to be constantly training them, making sure that they're differentiating still the way that they're, they're supposed to be. But um, in order to do that, theoretically, you would need to bring training samples, which for us is, is fecal samples, out onto the landscape. But we don't want to introduce potentially CWD into a landscape that does not have it. Um, so they did an, a, a research study looking at um, what other things could hold the CWD odor without, you know, running the risk of infecting the landscape with CWD. So they looked at um, 
PDMS, which is just kind of like a polymer that holds odor, um, just cotton balls or cotton rounds, um, which is used a lot with um, law enforcement explosives work. The cotton balls are like a, a classic thing you'd kind of use to hold odor. Um, and then these things called get scent tubes, which are just like a, a branded, like it's, I think it's a kind of like another little polymer thing. Um, but they, they looked at all three of those. And I think that overall, um, they found that the, the cotton generally, the dogs were able to differentiate the best on the cotton. Um, I think there were some conditions where some of the other things um, that the dogs did well on too, but it was like under much more specific conditions. Um, whereas I think the cotton was like more generally, um, you know, did a, did a better job of generally holding that odor and the dogs were able to more, you know, generally um, differentiate on that. And then, you know, kind of post working dog center, it kind of goes to me and my team. Um, and right now we're looking at kind of this next phase of what we're calling field research, um, where we're really trying to identify the detection rates of our dogs on the landscape. So functionally, um, on multiple terrains under multiple conditions, um, you know, how capable are these dogs of detecting CWD um, on the landscape? So we kind of just want to get an idea of, of what they look like uh, under known conditions before we kind of start putting them out in, uh, into like unknown conditions. Yep. So, so that people understand yeah. what this could mean for state wildlife agencies in particular that are tracking these disease. So for example, you know, early detection, being able to go out with dogs and, and, and potentially find it and be able to establish then management zones based on what the dogs find out there. Um, you know, it's just, it's not, I, I would caution though, and, and Brenna, you may want to add to this. I would caution to say, this is not a silver bullet. This is not that, oh, great. Now we could potentially have dogs that detect CWD right. and that's all we need now. But it certainly uh, could go a long way in helping us track where this disease is and then follow that up with good management. Yeah, I think it's exciting, right? The potential. Um, we we kind of are, you know, we're not in the deployment and management phase yet. So we kind of don't have a good answer quite yet to, to what the capacity could be. I think it is totally important to emphasize what you said that this is not Unfortunately, um, this is definitely not the silver bullet that's going to come in and eliminate CWD, but hopefully it'll increase our capacity for um, surveillance for management um, when we're kind of looking into next year of, of hopefully deploying these dogs into uh, more of a surveillance capacity. Um, you know, I, I, I think it'll be really interesting to see um, what they're capable of. Yeah, and I think that's that's it. I mean, we're we are excited to see that. And I would just say that in a, in the CWD world, we always are struggling to find anything positive to say yeah. about the issue. And I think this is just as one of one of many tools that'll help us understand where CWD is uh, and to help us control it. So it's not all bad news. This is some progress, and I think exciting yeah. and interesting progress. Yeah, I think so. And, and, you know, in the first kind of stage of this, at least we're going to just be integrating the dogs into the management efforts that, that, that are already kind of happening um, and kind of hopefully building up from there. But yeah, I think, I think it is, it is exciting. And I'm, 
I'm definitely curious and <laughs> excited and a little bit nervous to, <laughs> to see how to see how it goes. Yeah. And if you weren't nervous, then it's probably not important enough. So obviously yeah. this is very important. And so in <laughs> terms of invested in this personally. Oh, yes. <laughs> and you can see that you can see that having had the chance to spend some time with you and the handlers. I'll just tell the folks listening that uh, there is really an infectious energy and as wild and crazy as the dogs are, the handlers aren't too far behind. So uh, you all clearly love what you do and are very passionate about this research. Yeah, I, I think so. It's, you know, if you're not having fun with your dog it, and it is, you know, they really feed off of you too, but you also feed off of them. So it's like, I don't know, you're out in the field with a dog. How could you not be having a good day? You know. Hello, friends. Nick Pinizzato here to tell you about the latest flagship bow from our partners at Matthews. The all-new 2023 Phase 4 is Matthews' most efficient hunting system to date. This year, they challenged themselves to innovate at the leading edge of what physics will allow on a hunting bow. By dampening vibration directly in the limbs, they are able to drastically reduce downstream wasted energy felt in the hand during and after the shot. Combined with Matthews' new bridge lock stabilizers that offer improved balance points, increased harmonic tunability, and a more robust connection to your bow, the Phase 4 is the most advanced and adaptable hunting system they've ever created. I purchased a 29-inch Phase 4 earlier this year myself, and I can confirm that I've never shot a quieter bow. There's virtually no feedback through the grip, and it effortlessly buries arrows into the target. I absolutely can't wait to get it into the woods with me this fall. And on top of that, Matthews is an NDA sponsor, and they have made giving back to deer and wildlife conservation a priority. To learn more about the Phase 4 and the other bows in the Matthews line, visit their website at matthewsinc.com or simply Google Matthews Archery. Well, speaking of being out in the field, so I, this is something I've also heard brought up mm. and I think people want to know. So is this something you'll do during specific times of the year or will if the doctor there, if he's sitting up in his tree stand, can he expect to see your dogs running underneath them and chasing deer throughout the woods? Yeah, we definitely don't want to risk um, ourselves or our dogs getting shot would be ideal. So as of now, we've been, you know, we'll stay off of um, any kind of hunting lands during, uh, during hunting season. Um, I think, you know, we've been talking about the potential of, um, surveillance on private lands only that homeowners would allow us to come on. We would never come onto any, you know, anyone's property without their permission, but we have had some discussions about, you know, that kind of surveillance during, um, hunting season potentially, but yeah, we're, we're not going to be out anywhere where, um, you know, someone doesn't know we're there. Well, and I will say that, you know, I think that going back to the statement of how excited you are and how much energy is getting behind this, it's just like anything else is technically you're designing the playbook as you go right now, which is you need someone that actually, yeah. or people in, in, in a group that have that energy and that attention to detail because you're laying the groundwork for where this goes in the future. And if it's not done correctly, even though there's a lot of potential, it could actually flop. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory way. I'm just saying that in regards to research and science, that's unfortunately how it goes. But, you know, these dogs do have, I don't want to say a lot stacked against them, but you know, you heard uh, Brenna make the statement about how they have to go through so many different samples, you know, just for everyone that's not 
dog, you know, um, savvy is that dogs have to filter out so many different smells to identify that smell. And there might be as the deer diet changes, male versus female, different times of the year, different hormones that are released, et cetera. All of those things come into play. And then on top of that, you have what we call scenting conditions, where if it's a very low pressure, low humidity day, the scent's really close to the ground. And a dog would nearly have to be on top of that to be able to pick up that scent cone versus a very high pressure day with a light breeze with a little bit of humidity. When yep. you have ideal scenting conditions, they could pick this up from much further away. So the dog success rate will vary from day to day based on the conditions. I mean, literally, if there is a pile yep. to the dog's left and the wind was blowing from the right to the left and the dog ran past it on a low pressure day a foot away, the scent is not going to be, you know, like a specific molecule that would actually trigger them to stop would not enter their nose. And so therefore yep. they could miss it. So, um, you know, you can see why this is so much work goes into this. It's just not a simple, oh, well, we have a dog, a dog can smell and, you know, make them smell this and off they go. And, and we're having a great time. There's a lot of factors that go into play. There's a lot of factors. And I think that's why it's so important that like, yeah, it would be great to have, you know, come in and in six months be up and running and dogs are deployed and surveilling and all of those things. Um, but I think realistically, those would be the conditions under which a program like this would not be successful, um, you know, in order to have the level of success that we're hoping to have, we frustratingly do have to take our time with it. And um, that's why I think too, that our kind of next phase that we're looking at this, this upcoming year of figuring out what our detection rates are, like you're saying, you know, multiple terrains, multiple weather conditions. Um, we really want to have a solid, solid understanding of that um, so that we can understand uh, those detection rates for, for when we go out and, and be, you know, a little better informed when we're actually out there, you know, yeah, looking for stuff. You're exactly right. Because there are better days. I mean, if you draw, oh, yeah. I mean, when we actually would, you know, at a competition, we would draw, you always wanted to be doing field work in the morning when there was dew on the ground yeah. and, and the sending conditions were better versus two or three in the afternoon after the sun is beat on that field all day and it's ridiculously hot and no wind. So yep. um, yeah, coming up with your, and I hate using the word cookbook, but your situations of highest confidence and making sure that future trainers and future dogs understand that so that the time and effort and the money going into it is going to get the best bang for your buck. Yeah, exactly. Or if, you know, we um, go through an area, um, you know, if we were out there and surveying an area under conditions where we know that the detection rates are likely going to be lower, you know, that would be something that would become higher priority to revisit um, if we, you know, didn't come up with anything and thought we should. Yeah. So take us through a day in the life of Brenna Bobby or even your other handlers. What's it look like? You know, it depends. Um, like for me, Mondays are full of meetings, which is super boring. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, a day with the dogs is they, they have a lot going on. My goodness. Um, we really need to keep them in ideal physical condition for this job. This job is 
extremely physically demanding. Um, I mean, these are like Olympic level athletes. Um, and if, if they're not, and that, that also plays into detection rates, if they're not in really good shape, um, when they're running out on the landscape, if they start panting really quickly, their tongue is out that, you know, their mouth is wide open. Um, they're not smelling or at least not, you know, using their nose, engaging their nose to the level that we need them to. So we really need to keep them in kind of peak condition to be able to set them up for the most success for detection too. So they have, um, it sounds kind of silly, but they have workout regimens. Um, we do a lot of conditioning work with them. Um, we do lots of, you know, we, we do field training, like what you saw, Nick, um, you know, kind of going out and setting up conditions that look really similar to, to what we, you know, hope they'll be doing um, in the field and, and work on training, work on differentiating, you know, put out samples that are, again, no negative, no positive, um, ask them to differentiate, ask them to work the field, you know, set it up so that they kind of have a good understanding of what our expectations are of them. And then we also do um, other types of training too. So um, you saw the, the agility, we do stuff that, you know, it, it kind of just breaks them out of routine. Um, it helps build their confidence. We like our working dogs to be very confident and sound, um, but also they are really intense dogs who want to be doing things. So anything that can be mentally challenging for them and kind of give them a break too from like the really, really difficult CWD problem, I think is good for them. Um, and then we do like socialization work too. So like, we'll go to Lowe's, you know, and, and walk around and, you know, for, for Vera, we try very hard not to say hi to every single person that passes. <laughs> that can be really difficult. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we just, we want them, you know, to be nice and friendly and, and able to, you know, cause we want to be able to do outreach stuff and, and have them be um, appropriate and social too. So it, it can, it can really vary depending on, you know, depending on the day, depending on whether or not the weather's cooperating, like a gross rainy day is a good lows day um yeah but a but a day like today is a good field day for sure well i'll also say if you're thinking about being a dog handler you also should be thinking about getting in shape yourself because yeah. <laughs> all of the handlers <laughs> yeah all of your handlers you all are in great shape and i think that in order to keep up you got to be able to do that so mm. um final question sure so are there any either misconceptions or is there something about working dogs or the program that you wish more people would know? Misconceptions is hard. I don't know. I guess I've been so in this world for so long. I don't even know what outside conceptions of working dog or like or the program would be at this point. I think I'm like almost like, yeah, in too deep to understand um, what other people might think. I don't know. Do you have any, <laughs> did you have any conceptions maybe coming into this that have, that have uh, changed since getting to know myself and, and the dogs a little bit? I like, this is the first time Mike, someone's turned a question around on me. That's, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> um, well, basically what she's saying is, okay, noob or, or completely someone that doesn't know anything <laughs> about dogs. No, not that you don't, but um, right. yeah. Answer your own question. No, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, and I actually, I appreciate you asking that because I think one of the things I'll say it this way, 
one of the things that surprised me, and I have been around dogs an awful lot, and I've been around Mike's dogs, and um, one of the things that surprised me, I think, was the energy level of the oh, dogs yeah. and that um, you all didn't really try. And I think this is where a lot of people go wrong. With yeah, this dog is, training. I know where you're going with this. Yeah. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't go out of your way to try to restrain them. Mm. You redirected yeah. them in a certain way, which I think most people, the, the dog, they would look at that dog as being disobedient. So therefore yeah. I have to leash and I have to, you know, yell at and be strong handed where you all right. encourage it, but you redirect. Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a really good point. And I think maybe that's the biggest misconception is that because these dogs are highly trained that they're good. Um, and like, yeah, I think the the confusion between wait, isn't this like a service dog? It's like the polar opposite <laughs> yes. of a service dog, actually. Um, and I like to say that we build confidence into our dogs, right? So our dogs are very confident about lots of things, including uh, jumping up on people, jumping up on counters, tables, like the kind of joke is that if you don't know where Yuki is, he's on top of the fridge. Like it's, <laughs> you know, these are, we, we want them to be capable and confident of, of doing anything of, of following their nose, despite there being, you know, some obstacle getting in their way. Um, yeah. And they, they have this drive and this intensity. And, you know, when you saw them, they're getting out of the car to go to work. I don't want to tell them to, you know, oh no, you should chill out and calm down. And I don't want you to have that energy. No, they're like amped up, ready to go. They're excited because they want to go do their job. I don't want to dampen that at all. Um, if they, <laughs> their dogs, if they weren't excited to do their job, they wouldn't do their job. Uh, we, we put a lot of effort into, into making sure that they want to do this thing. Um, and, and if they didn't want to, there's like, it's not like I could be like, Oh no, you, you have to, they're like, (laughs) like, you know, uh, yeah. So, so we want to make sure that, that, that sure we'll, we'll redirect them. We'll ask them to get off or to be a little more polite or to not knock somebody over if we can. Uh, we usually give the people around a warning (laughs) when we're about to release them. Um, but yeah, it's, we, we want that excitement and intensity um and we want them to be you know to to love what they do otherwise like you know it kind of sucks if they're just getting out and like oh i guess i'll go find this thing you know yep totally and i will say that i came home dirty from head to toe that day it was great i loved it (laughs) and uh it was it was one of the one of the better days more memorable days of work here recently and so i'll just i'll say this in closing um, I know that myself and the National Deer Association team is very uh, excited and happy to be part in some small way of this partnership. Uh, it's very exciting work that you're doing. And also um, just to c- commend you personally and your team, uh, you do have a ton of energy. I think you're the perfect leader for what's going on there. You're smiling from ear to ear as we're doing the interview. So you love the work and you have the energy for it. So thank you all for the great work that you're doing and uh, all hunters out there should be thanking you. And folks, again, I would encourage you to look up uh, the working dog center at, uh, at PenVet and we'll put that information links to that in our show notes here today. So Brenna, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Look forward to seeing you out there in the field again soon. And, and Hey, continued good luck with this. This is important work. Thank you. Yeah. And you are on the front lines of really important research for chronic wasting disease. So thank you. Thanks. I appreciate it. It was fun talking to you guys.
Nobody enjoys talking about chronic wasting disease. But I do feel like, Mike, that this one was, it was fun. It's interesting to know that this work is going on. It also, this work holds a lot of promise, I think. It does. And the fact that people, and, and I don't want to call it thinking outside the box because working dogs or trained dogs are doing a lot in a lot of different areas from everything from cancer and disease detection in humans to drug smuggling, airport security, you know, safety. So, and as well as service work. So I'm, I'm saying that it's just good to see organizations taking dogs and trying to see if they can assist in a problem like they've done so successfully in other areas and other venues. Yeah. And with chronic wasting disease there, we always struggle to find, you know, a lot of positives that we can report on, but we think this is one of them. So we're going to continue obviously to follow the research and uh, figure out ways that dogs can help us. As you said, Mike, and they help us in so many ways. And this would just be another one added to a very long list. So thank you, Brenna and PenVet for being our guest today. Great, great information for sure. All right. Mike, it's time for the B-Team Report. It's your turn to go first. What do you got for us? Well, full disclosure, I have been withholding information from you. Oh. And I wanted to see the look on your face. Well, I'm a little concerned that you're waiting till now to, to tell me in a, in a public forum here. So I know. So drove to Pennsylvania um, for the first day of spring gobbler season last week. You and I game planned ahead of time because I hadn't been down there to do much scouting. So I headed to a farm that we both know. You're already smiling. You, I think you, you know where this is going. So get ready to go pull in. Well, actually, let me back up one more step. I get home, I start unpacking all my turkey stuff because historically I keep it together and I cannot find my face mask. And I have a, one that I like that's rather thick. And the reason I like it is because when I was younger, there was one time that the sun was shining in my face. I was actually calling with a mouth call and the, the, the face mask, I, I honestly think the turkey saw my jaw moving when I was trying to call through that <laughs> face mask. And so I found one that you can't see through, but it's very loose so that when my jaw moves, you, you know, no, nothing in that face mask moves. It's the perfect face mask for turkey hunting. I can't find it. I don't have it with me. And so I'm already now a little bit agitated because you know how I'm about having everything go just perfectly. And so I, I drive in, pull in, get out of the truck, start getting my stuff all together. Um, I'm just loading up my gun and I start walking. Uh, I'm just about to start walking. And all of a sudden I hear one turkey gobble on one side of the road and one on the other side of the road. And I'm like, okay, good. In my opinion, you know what it's like when the one is gobbling on the one side of the road that you and I both know where you actually shot your bird. If you can't get up there in the dark, you're at a loss because it's a very narrow ridge. They can see you. It's very open. So I chose to go after the one on the bigger mountain, which is what I was planning on doing anyways. So as I'm going up, I'm bumping deer constantly. From the minute I actually walk along the edge of the field, I'm bumping deer. Now, they're not blowing, but I mean, eight to nine deer, like they're just constantly in front of me running around. I can see them flagging in the dark. And 
they're they're not making a ton of noise because it was wet, so I was slipping in there. Well, as I'm halfway up the mountain, the turkey that was gobbling very regularly stops. And so now I'm trying to set up on that bird blind. Long story short, I set up, don't hear anything other than the bird on the other side of the road. So it gets quiet for a while, hear a couple shots. All of a sudden, the one on the original side of the road where I parked starts to gobble again. And I text you, I'm going after him. And so down the mountain I go, playing like quadzilla, like eccentric, you know, quad, like speed walking down this mountain for 20 (laughs) minutes, literally. My legs are killing me. I get across the road, up the other side, and as soon as I enter those woods, that bird stops gobbling. And one other key to this story was when I'm walking up the first mountain, I open up my mouth call box that I keep, and my very first or my best mouth call is not in there. And you want to know where it is? It's sitting back in New York on a paper towel right by the (laughs) sink after I rinsed it out. And so long story short, I don't have what I can, like everyone, for that people that mouth call a lot, they know that they have their best call, that when they put it in, every time you blow it, it is almost perfect. It makes the sound exactly the way you want it. Well, my number two is not nearly as good as that. So now I don't have my face mask. I have this tight face mask for deer hunting. I have, I don't have my number one call. I have my number two call, which is not good for soft, subtle calls. And I'm trying to actually work this, you know, get on this bird. So I go up to the top, you know, I sneak up, get set up, uh, where I think I'm going to be, I set my gun down. I'm like, I'm going to walk up about 50 yards and I'm going to see if I can strike him from up there. Cause I didn't want to strike him as I was walking up. Cause he would have had height advantage on me in regards to seeing down that ridge. So I get up to the top. I call, I don't hear anything. I call again. I don't hear anything. I call a third time after a couple minutes of waiting and he answers and he's down over the hill in the direction that I came from. Some, so somehow we passed each other by like a hundred yards, but we passed each other. So I, I hustle back. I'm like, okay, he knows where I'm at. I hustle back. I sit down. I set up my hen decoy. I don't have time to set up my Jake decoy and I wait. And so he's gobbling down over the hill, but he's coming. I'm like, okay, this is it. He's got it. But in the back of my mind, I'm, I don't feel good about anything because I got this tight face mask on. I don't have my number one call in. And because I'm like sweating now from like running down one mountain up the other, I'm fogging up my glasses. And so I can't see. So I pull my glasses off, set them next to me. And just about that time I get settled in, I see his fan coming up over the hill. And here's a full fan. He's in full strut right to where I was calling. I'm like, this is perfect because that's where I expect him to show up. I try and start calling on that number two. And it literally, it is a number two, literally, like it's a turd. Mm -hmm. It's not working the way. I mean, it's good for like cutting and and calling and and loud and like a lot of air pressure, but it's not good for subtle stuff. I can't, he's, he can see me. He's on the same level that I am. He can see me. So I can't reach over and grab my glass call, which is on the right. I couldn't even bring my good slate because it was so wet and rainy that morning. I left it at home too. So I'm at a loss here. I'm like limping along to this, you know, this process. So the bird starts to, you know, wander up there but he can't see the decoy i can't make a good call and literally he's up there for a little while i'm like i can't even scratch in the leaves to make it sound like a turkey feeding that's just not calling because he could literally see me like we're on a straight line through open woods 50 yards away and he slowly struts over the edge of the hill to the east and i'm like darn it so i'm like all right i'll grab my glass call i said I'm going to call from here. And so I call. It's that classic, like, hey, I've been here. I'm going this way now. And he's answering me as he's going out around the hill toward this one bigger field. 
And so I'm like, I'll go run up to there, try and call where he's at, go up, try and call where he's at. Nope, he's still gobbling on his way out to the field. I'm like, well, that was my chance. I go and start picking up my stuff. And then all of a sudden our buddy from last season, I hear, whoom, <laughs> his gobbling stops. I'm like, well, there you have it. That's my BU team report. You know, and everyone wonders why I'm so meticulous about having things the way that I need to have them. It's because I think either I'm my own worst enemy or it's just when something starts to go bad, it just goes really, really bad. But I had a chance at one. He was he was 50 yards away. My gun, I'm only comfortable shooting at 30, 35. And that was, that was it. I, you know, had a chance at one and did not turn out okay. Well, as far as we've never actually seen that guy carrying a turkey out of the woods. He could be an awful shot and he may be a candidate for the B team report. But I don't know. He seems to keep coming back and we hear his gun go off a lot. So uh, anyway, um, there you have it. Hey, that's turkey hunting. There you have it. Yep. You got to be confident in your gear. I mean, that's that's key to all this, right? Whether it's, you know, bow hunting, gun hunting, fly fishing. Like if I'm not throwing a fly I'm confident with, I just, it's not the same. And if you're not calling with a turkey call you're confident with, it's not the same. And so, yeah, I know exactly where all that took place. For whatever reason, it's incredibly difficult to get a bird shot on that ridge. And, uh, yeah, that's the breaks. Try, try again, I guess that they say. The well, my B-team report is a little bit different. Uh, I'm going back. To, this is still back to my truck ordeal. So I get two B-team reports out of the truck ordeal. So they do fix my truck, which was down in Maryland. And so the plan was I'll go pick it up. I drive down early on a Monday morning. I'll leave nice and early because I had some other things going on in the afternoon. And I get up nice and early, get out, get out on the road. Everything is right on time. And I get about a half hour from home. And I'm thinking, well, I'm going to stop for gas now because I have this uh, this car that they gave me to use while I'm waiting for my truck. And I'm like, I'm going to fill up now so that when I get down there, I'll just top it off and we'll be good. Well, I'm glad that I decided I wanted to try to fill up with gas because when I was thinking that I reached for my wallet, my wallet was still at home. Oh. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, and the main reason my wallet was still at home is because my normal keys, I hang on this little hook where I keep my wallet and I just grab both and head out. Well, because I had this different car, it had a little different setup on the key ring. I had the keys separate from my wallet. So I grabbed the keys, headed out left the wallet. Now, luckily, uh, my wife was able to meet me. She she came halfway. And so I lost my first half hour and an additional 15 minutes going back and then getting my keys or getting my wallet. And then I did continue on my way. So, you know, that that was the gift that kept on giving the issue with the uh, with the truck breaking down. Uh, but anyway, I did get it back and uh, returned their rental vehicle. And that's the, that is the end of B-team stories with that truck. And so, you know, not quite as exciting as yours, but equally as frustrating. Well, and I wonder here, there seems to be a common theme recently about being forgetful. I wonder if we're just starting to push the, the envelope of being over the hill. I don't know if I need to get onto some Prevagen or something like that, but... It's just one of those things because for me, I had that turkey call out and I was using it to drive back and forth to work and just get myself tuned up and practice. And I always rinse it off and let it air dry because it's, again, that it's my favorite call. So I treat it very, very well. And I just 
what I did, the mistake I made is I folded the paper towel over it so that no dust would get on our dog dander from the dogs around there until I could put it back away. And I've never noticed it because I just saw this paper towel fold on the on the counter and I leave paper towels that are like, I don't want to call them reusable. Like if I just used it to like dab up some water at the sink, I'll leave it there until I need to clean something. And I just didn't see it. And I did, the one good thing is I have found my official turkey hunting face mask, as you saw in that video. That's my face, because you can see me talking, but that mask doesn't even move. It's like perfect. I love that thing. Yeah, again, it's confidence in equipment. And yeah, the one the one positive of all my driving around was that I did carry along my calls and did a little work just to make sure I was up to speed. Now, I'm not one of these people that I've never believed that you have to be a world champion caller to kill a turkey. And so I'm an adequate caller. I've called lots of birds. I've called some in tough situations. I've had called some in easy situations. I mean, you can't be terrible. I think it's more important to be where the turkeys expect the hens to be and where they want to be. I think that's that's a big part of the battle. I think having decoys, at least that's worked for me over the years. That's been important and scouting is important. And the calling is one aspect of it, but I did at least get them out and I do the same thing. I had four calls I was working and I rank them in order. Okay, this is my number one, this is my number two. And I go yeah, two or do. three. Yeah, I go two or three deep that I'm confident with, and then the fourth one's real iffy. But that's the one where you're just sort of, uh, you know, throwing out a Hail Mary and trying to make something work. But, uh, well, I got a little turkey story, a short one. I did not get to go out opening day because we had a baseball tournament, and opening day starts on a Saturday here. And so that's a little bit frustrating because I'm seeing all kinds of I – had, I had put some effort into scouting. I had trail cameras out was getting pictures of birds pretty much all over my place and a couple really nice gobblers. And so I knew they would be around, but I wasn't going to be able to hunt them. And so because I'm so close to, to state land, I worry about, okay, is somebody going to call these birds in and shoot them before I get an opportunity? Well, as luck would have it, it didn't seem like that happened because I was still getting the pictures. And so finally, Monday morning was my chance to go because we can't hunt here on Sunday. And so I wake up Monday morning and I look at the radar and there's a lot of rain. And that was just about the time this awful system that has sat over us for days was working its way in. But I thought, you know what? There's just enough windows. It's not a, it's not a constant rain, but there's just enough windows in there. And I had, went, had gone out and set up a blind a few days prior. I thought all I have to do is get out, get my decoy set up and get in that blind and I'll be dry. And plus I took my camera gear and all that. So I, luckily, I sucked it up and I went out there and, and drove out, got there in plenty of time. And it did drizzle a little bit as I walked to the blind, but it wasn't a big deal. Got my decoy set up, got situated in the blind, and then you're just, you're just sitting there waiting, right? You're waiting for something to happen. And uh, it no sooner got just about 6 a.m. and a bird gobbled right next to me. I thought, well, that's good. And he, hopefully he didn't see me, but uh, he's nearby. And then another bird gobbled. And I had texted you, Mike, because you were out as well. And I said, well, we have birds gobbling. And then uh, it wasn't, I looked at my clock, it was 614. I texted you again with a picture of a turkey on the ground. And I said, well, I'm done. <laughs> so um, we were just talking about this recently where it's rare that you go out and your plan A is the one that works and you get the turkey. Far more, far more of my experiences have been, I start out with plan A and I kill the turkey on like plan B or even plan C. But Mike, plan A worked this time. And that's something that I've 
been hearing from more and more people that it's getting harder and harder to kill birds off the roost. And I shouldn't say it again, like a general broad brushstroke statement like that, but uh, people are saying that they're having more luck after those birds get down the ground, very similar to what I did. I mean, the ones that I was hunting hit the ground, they were dead silent. They didn't even gobble once they hit the ground. And then I heard them gobbling, oh, wow, 300 yards away, give or take with my hearing um, in this field. And I'm like, in which we can't get to It's you know, it's actually posted at that point. And so the other bird, either if he had hens or a hen or two, he was done with them and he was just there by himself and he started cranking himself back up again, probably somewhere around like 7.30, I think is what it was. And so um, if I, and I think if I would have had everything in order, I would have had either a much better chance to kill him or I would have killed him because the one other downfall was he didn't see my decoy. It was like that dark, drizzly, rainy day. I had the decoy just off to my right because I'm left-handed and he and I were right straight on. Well, he never saw that decoy and I didn't put out my Jake, which is bigger and darker and a little bit more flashy with the color. And so I wasn't calling like I normally would call. He couldn't see my decoys. And But the thing is, he was ready to work and thus I'm, I'm and the thing is, if that guy got it, good for that guy, because that, that bird was going somewhere and he knew where it was going. And if he got it, good for him. But that bird was ready to work. And it was um, what I see more and more is the fact that, OK, these mid morning times are really good. So that's just what, you know, I've been seeing more often than not now. Well, this was one of one of the rare cases where, number one, I think scouting and knowing where the birds were was important for me. I had gone out a few days prior and put the blind up and I had envisioned in my mind exactly what I was going to do. And my decoy spread that I like to use, especially early season, is two hens, one feeding, one alert, and then a jake. And I feel like that the jake is really what draws them in. And so in this case, I went out and they could easily see my decoys because I'm in the, I'm in a field. I'm on the edge of my food plot. And I put the, the decoys about 15 yards out in front of me with my little setup. And uh, what happened was when the birds came down, I didn't see them come down. I didn't hear them come down. And so I don't know if the other bird I heard gobbling next to me might have been, you know, a different bird or whatever. But uh, just as it was coming, it was coming, it was pretty light at this point. And they were still gobbling. And then the next thing you know, I'm looking down ahead of me and coming straight up over the hill, here comes that white head. And then I quickly was able to see, oh, that's a long beard. And then right behind him was another one. And so I had two long beards coming. And so when I called, I called so light and so soft that literally was just sort of putts and purrs. I never yelped one time. I just wanted them to know, hey, there are birds up in that field because my trail cameras were telling me they were hanging out in that field all the time. And so that's where they would expect birds to be. Nobody's bothered them. And so, like I said, really soft calling and they were coming. And as soon this is the best part. It's almost like when you decoy a deer in, right? When that turkey saw that decoy spread, he came hot. He was coming hard. And you know, at that point, as, you, as we say, they're in the funnel, right? Like at this point, it's only, it's only the question of whether or not I shoot straight. And so he come, he comes straight in for the decoys and the other one was coming behind him. I guess in hindsight, I could have uh, just sat back a little bit and let them come in and have some fun around the decoys, but uh, I don't like to wait around. So he, he come in, I let him get to about 20 yards 
and uh, pulled the trigger on the first one that came through. And so there it was 15 minutes into my season, my tag was filled in PA. So I don't know, Mike, I love it when it, when a plan comes together like that, but then there's also that part of me that's like, well, man, I also like the strategy of trying to work a bird that maybe I don't get for a couple times that, you know, the back and forth part of it. And I'm not going to have that this year. So maybe I'll spend some time fly fishing or something. Well, and the thing is, I'm I'm wrapping up here, and I think you and I talked about it. Is that it's it's more fun to actually go with somebody else in most situations. So, um, you know, I'm sure we'll get out, and you can always call for me because apparently, if I forget my stuff, it's good to actually have a person that actually has some calls that'll work. So that'll be good. Well, it was fun. I mean, I I don't take any turkey for granted. I've had seasons where I struggled to the very last minute to get one. And then I've had this happen where sometimes it just is really easy and you're in the right place at the right time. But I would just say scouting is a big part of it. You're going to have a better year if you're prepared and you're not just running out there saying, well, I'll eventually hear and find a bird and I'll get on them. I just think it helps to know as much about the birds uh, as you possibly can. So that's turkey season wrap for me. I'm sure you'll still have some more stories here. And as you said, hopefully we can we can get out together. So. Hey folks, I want to remind everybody again that today is NDA Giving Day. This is a big day for us. We raise a lot of money to support our mission, support our organization, and our contributions are matched up to $50,000. Uh, we recently released our annual report. We're very proud of that. This would be our annual report from 2022. And front and center in that report, we talk about how we spend 90% of the money that comes in on our mission. Very little is spent on going out and just doing fundraising. We're also a very lean organization, which is something I'm proud of. Uh, we, we do all the work we do with like 21, 22 employees, okay? Uh, so it's a lot with not a lot of people. We are not interested in just being a big organization. We're interested in being an effective organization. And I'm proud of what we've done. Uh, as I said, we're very lean. We've had three excellent, well, two excellent years and working on a third excellent year from a budgetary standpoint for the organization since our merger. And we want to continue that. And your dollars are going, as I said, they're going toward furthering our mission. And we exist, frankly, because of your help. So if you're inclined to support the National Deer Association, today would be a great day. Get your gift matched and help us support our very important mission for wild deer, habitat, and hunters. Uh, if you've already given, thank you very much. If you've given in the past, we appreciate it. If you're a volunteer and you're giving to us that way, we appreciate it. And if you're sitting there listening to the Coffee and Deer podcast and you're not a member, you haven't given before, give us a hard look because uh, I think we're worth it. I really do. So with that, folks, thank you for listening. We'll catch you again on the next episode, National Deer Association, where we are united for deer.